0: together. We pray, Lord, that we would be spiritually minded, that we would be men of Christ, uh, that we'd be men, Lord, who are an example to others, to our children and to uh, our neighbors and to the lost. We pray that you'd help us to be leaders in our families and in our homes. We ask, Lord, that you'd make us influential for your kingdom, that we would be uh, um, like Christ. You said, Lord, that greater works would we do because you go to the Father. So we just pray, Father, that you would make us to, um, to be like Jesus. And so we, we commit all these things to you, Lord. We pray that we would grow, that we wouldn't be stagnant in the waters. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that for those that, that maybe would profit from these Bible studies, Lord, these times coming apart, that you would draw them, Lord, that there would be, um, a string in their heart, Lord, that they would come and and, and so we just pray these things today, Lord, we lift up our world, we uh, see it falling apart, Lord, we see despair, Lord Jesus, in, in the faces of so many. We uh, hear daily of the, um, the breaking up of families and of marriages, we hear of uh, children's lives being shipwrecked, Lord, and prodigals and um, heartbreak, it just seems like there's so much pain in the world today, Lord, and uh, we ask you, Father, that you would uh, help, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit again, that you would bring times of refreshing, Lord, and uh, times of revival, as we read about in, even in the Word. And So we just ask you for all these things this morning, Lord, and, um, and we are thankful. So please bless this time in, in your Word, and uh, help us to hear your voice today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. 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 Genesis chapter thirty. Yeah, that's that's, that's it, right? Genesis thirty. Not working. It's not. It's just in case. It's personal. Jacob's story began with him holding the heel of his brother when he came out of the womb, and it really set the tone for his life. His relationship with God really began. Uh, Many years later, when after um, deceiving his father and uh, his brother, he uh, was forced to leave home in order to save his own life and finally getting out from under the shelter of his parents. He found himself in a desert, alone and with nothing, with his head upon a rock for a pillow. And he dreamed a dream, and he saw a ladder or a staircase that started on earth and found its top in heaven, and that the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And it says that the Lord was standing over it. And upon seeing this, he heard the voice of God, and upon waking, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And it speaks volumes to uh, who the man had been and to what he would become that surely the Lord is in this place, but I knew it not. The Lord is in my life, but I didn't realize it. I didn't recognize it. I didn't understand uh, who he was or or what his involvement was. But what Jacob saw that day in the very beginning is he saw that there is an unbreakable relationship between heaven and earth and that uh, heaven is the higher reality and the Lord who's over it is the highest authority, And um, for Jacob, that was a revelation of something that he he maybe knew in his mind, but never really understood. And it's really the reality of all of existence, is that heaven and earth are irrevocably related. um, And what happens in one uh, has an effect upon the other. And that is absolutely always true. There's a direct relationship between heaven and earth. Jesus taught his disciples, as we're learning on Sundays, that when you pray, say thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, an unbreakable uh, bond between the two. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary announcing to her the birth of Jesus and that she would be the one uh, through whom he would come into the world... The proclamation that the angel made to her was this, and it's very famous, it's on every Christmas card, we see it all the time, it is, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. And that's not just a song, it's not just a phrase or poetry that, uh, you know, that we like to hear, but there's actually a truth tucked into that declaration, is that when glory is given to God in the highest, that is that when he's in his proper place, uh, it has its proper place, then the result of that on earth will be peace and goodwill towards men. That is always the order, that when things are right between um, earth and heaven, then things are right on earth between earth. We see in the book of Revelation, in chapter 8, when John uh, is seeing the vision of, of the apocalypse, of the end times, it says that there was uh, a, a portion there where there was silence in heaven for a period of a half an hour. And it says that one of the angels that were there took a golden bowl that was near the altar and he filled it with incense from the altar in heaven. And it says that then he cast it uh, into the earth, the contents of the bowl. And then upon that pouring out of the contents of the bowl, there was thunderings and lightnings and voices and an earthquake. And so we see that something that happened in heaven had a direct relationship with events that took place on earth. There's uh, strings attached between the two. And what we learn in the Bible is that uh, what's taking place in the vertical between heaven and earth, the latter as it were, has a direct effect upon the horizontal. And that is what happens uh, on earth between those that are in earth, but that heaven is always greater. And that was the beginning of Jacob's revelation of God, is the relationship between heaven and earth. But now as we've seen Jacob a little bit, we saw him at his birth holding on to the heel of his brother, and we've seen the way that he operates in his relationship with his, uh, his brother, and then his parents, and then himself, and then the world, and everything. What we see in this man Jacob is that his life is very much a life of wrestling He's a man who wrestles or struggles uh, from his birth and his home life. And even now, as he's separated from all of his family, we see that this is still the characteristic that marks his life greater than anything else. He does things his way, and he wants to do things his way. Uh, And his life is very much characterized by that truth, um, that that it's his way. and He's a wrestler. And that wrestling that makes up this man Jacob is going to find its culmination In chapter 32, a little ways uh, forward from where we are right now, uh, when when the wrestler is going to find himself in the main event at WrestleMania. (laughs) And that will happen um, when he is on his way home and he's met by a mysterious man in the night, none other than Jesus Christ himself, and this wrestler uh, is going to meet the match that ultimately will settle all the others. And the great, the great wrestling match um, that, that characterizes Jacob is his wrestling match between himself and heaven. And the reason why we see this man as such a wrestler in his affairs in earth is because he's a man who's wrestling with heaven. He is not settled uh, in that place, and those things have not been made right. And because heaven and earth are directly linked, If he's wrestling with heaven, there's going to be wrestling on earth. And thus, that's what we see in this. And as we look in this chapter, uh, we see the wrestlings of the man Jacob. And all that pertains to Jacob is nothing but struggle and wrestling. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 30. It says that when Rachel, and so this is uh, one of his now two wives, um, he bought one, he got two, got one thrown in for free. It was a buy one, get one deal on that day. Got to read chapter 29 to, to see how that happened if you missed it. But it says that when Rachel, who was the beautiful and favored yet younger wife, the one he wanted, when she saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now, uh, Leah, who was the older and not so favored sister that was thrown into this uh, contractual agreement that that Jacob didn't necessarily want. She is more or less a human Pez machine. Um she you know her fertility uh is off the charts. And uh you know, I I think my wife has this too. You know, like sometimes there's almost like this Wi-Fi fertility thing. You're like, I didn't touch you. How is this possible? They you know and and uh and this is what's happening with um uh, with Leah, she's had already four children um, in the thing. They haven't been married. It hasn't all that much time hasn't passed, but in the time period that she's had four children, Rachel's had none, and she's beginning to realize that uh, there's obviously some something going on here um, where there's a problem. She is uh, much like. We read about Rebecca. She was infertile and incapable of having children until the Lord intervened, much like we read about Sarah. And now the same thing is happening to Rachel, the one whom Jacob favors. But we were told in the last chapter that the reason why the Lord closed her womb is because Jacob favored her so much and Leah was suffering this pain of rejection. And so God comforting Leah uh, through, through these kids that are coming and Rachel obviously tormented. But we're told here that Rachel envied uh, Leah and that envy brought her to a point of despair. She said to her husband, give me children or else I die. And the sentiment behind what she's feeling right now is that she had uh, so become uh, consumed by this desire that she had to have children that she could see nothing else in life. She couldn't see her husband. She couldn't see uh, her past, present, or future. All she could think about, dwell on, uh, or focus on was the fact that she couldn't have children. And to her, this had become, become the one great purpose in her life. And if she could not have this one thing that she had decided was the very purpose for her life, then there was no other greater thing for her than that she should die. If I can't have this, then the whole purpose for my life is shot, and so uh, I might as well just be killed in the whole thing. And envy... Uh, has an effect upon any human being that, um, that, that blinds them to everything else that's going on in their life. They can become so consumed with something that they're coveting after or wanting uh, that everything else holds absolutely no value at all. They just, I could die to it. It could be gone. The whole world could just explode. Uh, this one thing is the most important thing in, in everything else. And, and you see here in this woman that she is completely and totally blinded. She's blind, first of all, to um, what the, the pain that her sister Leah is going through. Uh, no sensitivity or concern for anybody else. The fact that uh, Leah her whole life has had this disadvantage, this obvious disadvantage, um, and it doesn't matter to her. You know, well, I don't care what Leah's feeling. I don't care that God might be comforting her, that there's something going on where uh, God is blessing her because she needs it. That doesn't see that. She can't see it. Uh, completely blind to what God might be doing in her. I mean, just think for one moment, what God accomplished in Sarah and in Rebecca through their barrenness. Think of how God drew them to to himself. Think of the fruit that came in, in their lives because they dealt with their barrenness in the proper way, in the proper context. But she can't see any of that. She's so consumed with just, well, Leah's having kids and I'm not, you know, and the whole thing. She's blind, completely blind, to the fact that she's the one that's favored by Jacob, when Leah is still yet hated, as it were. And if you think about it, the whole reason why Leah was in such torment was because she didn't have the thing that Rachel has, and that is the affection of Jacob. The, The thing that was tormenting Leah, Rachel had it, and yet she was blind to that because uh, she, she was consumed by the fact that she herself couldn't have children. And so she is completely blind and unev- unable even to be thankful for the things that she has. And I would caution each one of us this morning, I believe God uh, would, to, to becoming so consumed with something that we want as it relates to, to the things of earth that we lose sight of all the things that we do have that are a blessing to us And that we can't also see the things that God might be doing behind the scenes in working things together for our good. And so be careful. Beware of envy. Beware of being so consumed with something that you don't have on earth, uh, you know, and all of this. Well, notice what she does in this. It, It tells us that she said to Jacob, she said, give me children or else I die. And so Rachel's response to this uh, envy is that she puts an unreasonable um, requirement upon Jacob, or she gives to him a role that it is not his to fulfill. And notice his response to it in verse 2. It says that Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in God's place who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? So Jacob's response to this being placed in this uh, unreasonable position is that he becomes angry uh, with Rachel. And we don't know what that looked like, uh, but there was something there where, where in his mind, he realized that he was being put in a position where he could not fulfill what it was that Rachel wanted. And not being able to do that and solve the problem that she has, uh, he, he comes to the place where he becomes frustrated, even to the point now of anger and there's a warning here I believe for all of us and and the warning is this is that be careful not to place a requirement upon your spouse to be something that they can't be or to do something that they cannot do. And that's a very real temptation on both sides of a marriage covenant, that we can, uh, we can look at our wife or our wife can look at us and they can expect us to be something that it just is impossible for us to be or to do something that it's, not, it's impossible for us to do. Or to just place us or we can place them always, listen, just one requirement beyond what they are. You know, just, just be this one thing more than what you are for me. And 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 no matter what they do or who they are, they're always just one requirement beyond. The carrot is just, as it were, just a little bit further beyond their reach. And we're trying to push them into being something that they just aren't being. And what happens is that frustration results. Because the recognition is that I'm never gonna be able to satisfy or please my spouse. Don't put that on your spouse. Because, because what happens is this, is that, you know, what you're trying to produce or to attain by putting that upon your spouse, you know, you might attain it once or twice, but eventually it's going to come to a point where they're just going to say, I cannot please this man or I, or I can't please this woman, you know? And then what happens in the thing is that you begin to shut down. Well, I'm just not, I can't, it's impossible for me to do it. And then separation occurs within a marriage. And so we see that happening here with Jacob. He's getting angry, and he looks at her, and he says, I'm not in the place of God. It is not my role and responsibility to make you conceive. I can go through the motions, but I cannot create life in your womb. That is strictly reserved for God alone. He's withheld you. And so he tells her the truth concerning this thing, that this is of God. He's done it. Now, for Rachel's sake, the Bible says... In the Psalms, that He, God, withholds no good thing from those that love Him. In other words, for you right here, sitting here this morning, and me as we sit here, the Bible says that God does not withhold any good thing from us. He doesn't do that, that's not in His nature. He doesn't hold a blessing biscuit in His hand. And tell us to bark louder, or speak, or jump through a hoop, or perform a trick, or when you get to this point, then I'll, he doesn't do that. That's not his nature. That's not his way. He's a father, and a father gives. We understand that in the context of being fathers. We desire to give good gifts unto our children. Now, when do we withhold giving something to our kids? When we know, as their father, it won't be good for them. It wouldn't be good for me to give this to you right now. It won't be good for your life. And so if God is withholding something from a life, he's doing it because it wouldn't be good for us to have it. And he sees what we can't and knows what we don't. And so if he doesn't give us something, or if something is being withheld from us, it's for our good. Now God is working things in Rachel's life, in her character, in her being. He's working things in Leah's life. He's working things in Jacob's life and in their family. He's orchestrating a plan that will ultimately work out for everyone's good. But if we lose sight of that, then we become discouraged because of God's withholdings. God doesn't give us one ounce of anything more than what's good for us. And if he does, we somehow ruin it. We mess up our lives with it. Sometimes I find myself praying, God, I need more strength. I need more energy. Why does it seem, Lord, that I'm always just one calorie behind what I need in terms of the energy that I need in this life? And you know what the answer from heaven is? Because if I gave you just one watt more than what you have, you would make a mess of your life. You would start saying stupid things to people in bold confidence that you don't need. (laughs) <laughs> you know and and that's true about money it's true about uh um time it's true about energy it's true about everything in our lives even the physical things he doesn't withhold good things so if he's withholding it's because it's not a good thing and we need to trust him enough to know that he's working it together for our good and it might not be forever as it won't be with Rachel he's going to open her womb in his time but may we rest in the fact that he's got us right where we need to be. And so uh, the wrestling going on between Rachel and Leah, wrestling now going on between Jacob and Rachel, and wrestling going on between Rachel and God. A lot of wrestling. This is just the beginning (laughs) in the whole thing. And so she said in verse 3, human solutions to divine problems, not a good idea, but we see it happen and we do it ourselves. She said, behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her. Why don't we add another woman to this mix? And she will bear upon my knees that I also may have children by her. Now Bilhah was given as a maidservant, which meant that she was the legal property of Rachel. And thus if she would bear with Jacob's seed, bearing upon the knees would mean that she'll have the child, she'll be the surrogate, but I'm the mother. And so I will be the legal parent of the offspring, but yet she will be the one that bears her physically. And so she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid, to wife, and Jacob went in unto her. And Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore called she his name Dan, or Judging that Dan means judge or judging, meaning that God has judged in my favor in this thing. He has, he has um, uh, um, just been in my corner. And so Bilhah, Rachel's maid, conceived again. Jacob's enjoying this. And bear Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, there's the word, you could circle it. She says, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali, or wrestling. And so you see this competition now between Rachel and Leah, uh, with Jacob right in the middle of the whole thing, um, just growing in its intensity. And here it grows even more, verse 9. So when Leah saw that she had left bearing, she's no longer conceiving. It says that she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, to wife. Okay, number four. (laughs) Four for the price of one. Verse 10. And Zilpah, Leah's maid bear Jacob a son, and Leah said, a troop comes, and she called his name Gad, so she sees the writing on the wall, she says, we got four of these things going, we have become a human producing factory, uh, here in this part of the world, and so here comes a troop, and so she called his name Gad, uh, fitting, I, I don't know that God knew the, the, the puns of English and Hebrew and all, but Gad, E-Gad, you know, this is nuts, <laughs> you know, and so, uh, verse, 12, and Zilpah, Leah's maid bear Jacob, a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed, and she called his name Asher, Uh, (laughs) boy, it just keeps going, so Asher means happy, and so Reuben, now uh, the plot thickens even greater, uh, or at least the, um, the struggle of things, went in the days of wheat harvest, and he found mandrakes, in the field, and he brought them to his mother, Leah. So mandrakes was kind of like a, a, you know, like a wild, almost pomegranate-type um, f- uh, food, fruit that was out in the field, uh, um, mostly in those days considered something of medicinal value, and uh, used uh, as a, something that would um, accentuate fertility, or uh, um, and kind of an aphrodisiac type of type of a thing. And so that's, they called them love apples, uh, in another context. And so these, um, Mandrakes are found, and so Reuben finds them, he brings them unto his mother Leah, uh, you know, female Viagra, so to speak, uh, brought into the home. Now, hey mom, let's throw this into the mix of four women and uh, and all the whole thing. And, and so she immediately capitalizes on this, an opportunist like anyone else. And so uh, Reuben brings these things to Leah, Rachel finds out about it. So Rachel said to Leah, give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. Hey, I'm the one with the fertility issues. I need those more than you do. And she said unto her, and now this is great, is it a small matter that you have taken my husband? And would you take away my son's mandrakes also? I mean, a little catty, <laughs> one step away from hair pulling and Screaming in the whole thing, oh you now you now you you took my husband, now you want my mandrakes, as though those things are on equal playing field, A little bitterness here <laughs> you know yes it uh it's wait till you see what's about to happen it gets even it gets even worse, and so he said, would you take what my th-? so Rachel said therefore He shall lie with you tonight for thy son's mandrakes. Okay, let's make a deal. Jacob likes my tent. You know when he comes in, he's going to be coming my way. I'll tell you what. You give me some mandrakes. I'll send Jacob to you tonight. You can have them. And so, verse 16, Rachel, Leah likes the idea. Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in unto me. For surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes. And so he laid with her that night. First instance, by the way, of male prostitution in the Bible. Uh, Jacob bought by his wife, from his wife, with mandrakes. First time mandrakes are used as currency in the Bible. (laughs) A lot of firsts in the book of Genesis. And so Jacob came out of the field in the evening... Oh, I already read that. Sorry. Verse 17. And so God hearkened unto Leah and she conceived and bare Jacob a fifth son. And so Leah begins now. She obviously ate some of the mandrakes before giving the rest to (laughs) Rachel. So she conceives now a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my hire because I have given my maiden to my husband. And she called his name Issachar, or for hire, uh, my wages, so to speak. Like, I, this is my reward. <laughs> and then Leah conceived again, and she bare Jacob the sixth son, and Leah said, God has endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me, because I have borne him six sons, and she called his name Zebulun. And so at this point, Rachel, who's born none, Leah, who's born six, she realizes, I have won this race. And so she's kind of settled in this thing, uh, um, confidently, and in, in the whole deal. And so my husband will dwell with me. So afterwards, she bore a daughter and she called her name Dinah, who will come back into the narrative a little bit later on. And God remembered Rachel. And so verse 22, you want to circle that there. If you uh, are one who um, finds yourself relating to verse one. If you are one who uh, looks at things in your life and you say, God, why is this not happening in my life? Or God, why is this happening in my life? Or God, why, why, why? Uh, Verse 22 is a great comfort. It says that God remembered Rachel. He sees our struggles. The Bible says that that the, the eyes of the Lord are upon us and his ear is open to our cry. He knows what's going on in our lives. Jesus said, your heavenly father knows the things that you have need of before you even ask him and that he himself cares about us. And so sometimes it seems like God's withholdings are forever or that there's a curse or something, but it's just timing. It's timing. It says it says that God remembered Rachel and he hearkened listened unto her and he opened her womb. And she conceived and she bore a son and said God has taken away my reproach and she called his name Joseph and said the Lord shall add to me another son, and so by faith, she speaks this forward, um, and she says, I will have another. And so it came to pass that when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, now send me away that I might go into my own place, into my country. So the chapter divides here in half. Uh, the first half just, just giving to us the narrative and the dynamics of Jacob's family life and how these 12, what will become the 12 tribes or the 12 sons of Israel were born. And so we uh, we see the context and, and, and the way that that happened relative quickly. Uh, these 12 sons of Jacob now brought forward um, will become the patriarchs of the nation itself. Jacob's name being changed to Israel. We'll catch that later. And so now he comes to Laban, second half of the chapter, and he asks Laban um, to send him off. He wants to go. It's time to go back home. I've been here for 14 years now. Uh, I I served you seven years for for Rachel. Uh, You made me serve you seven more for Leah. I fulfilled my time. I've been with you here, and now I want to go home. I want to go back to my country. And so he says in verse 26, he says, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done you. Uh, I've been faithful and I want to go home. And so Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in your eyes, tarry or stay. For I have learned by experience, I've seen it with my own eyes, that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. That is that I can look at my life before you came here 14 years ago and he had a history. Remember, Laban was of age back when Rachel, I mean, uh, Rebecca was, was uh, shipped off to Isaac. So he's been, he's not a young man. And so he says, I can look at my life before you came here, and I can look at my life after you came here, and I can see that God's been with me for your sake. God, God has blessed me. Now, Laban is not a good man, but he's not a dumb man, He's very smart, and he realizes uh, when he's got a good thing going, and he says, please stay. And so he says in verse 28, he says, appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. (laughs) That's not negotiating from strength, is it? You name the salary. Whatever you want, I'll, I'll pay you. And so he said unto him, you know, Jacob speaking, how I have served you and how your cattle were with me. For it was little that you had before I came, and it is now increased into a multitude, and the Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I provide for my own house also? And so, what we see here a little bit is that the veil is pulled back, and we see what's going on inside the mind of Jacob. What we realize is that there's a wrestling that's going on internally as well is that there's a discontent in the circumstances that surround Jacob's employment and he's looking for something else. So every day he gets up and he's going to work and as he looks around at, at what he's doing, and he looks around at the you know you know the sheep that he's following after, he looks at the landscape of where he's living, and he's realizing that although uh, there's some blessing in this thing and there's some prosperity in what I'm producing, he says things just aren't right. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. I don't feel like I'm in the right place. Uh, I, I'm not I'm I'm not earning or, or building something for my future the way that I feel like I should be. And there's a discontentment stirring. Uh, as it relates to his outward circumstances, a wrestling inside. And so in verse 31, Laban said, what will I give you? Well, what will make this right? What can I pay you uh, in order that you'll be content? And so Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. You shall uh, do this thing. But if you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flock. Jacob, uh, not the kind of man that wanted a handout, He wanted the the self-respect of knowing that he was providing for his own. He said, I don't want you to give me anything. But if you'll do this, then I'll keep your flock. I'll stay on for a season. And so here's the deal. Verse 32. Jacob um, gives it. Now follow me here. If you're falling out, if you're, you know, if you fuzzed out, just pay attention, catch the terms. Here's the contract. Verse 32. He says, I will pass through all your flock today, removing from it, all the speckled and spotted cattle, and all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire. In other words, what we have here is we have two different types of uh, of livestock in this flock. We have, first of all, the solid colored animals, sheep, rams, goats, black, totally brown, or white, just total you know, straight through, purebred, so to speak. But then, on the other side of the flock, there are those that are mixed between the two. They're spotted, they're speckled, they're sheep with, uh, you know, they look like Dalmatians, 101 of them, you know, and and uh, whatever, or, or that, are, that are striped or that are mixed in some way, grizzled. And he says, we're going to go through and we're going to separate all of the purebred ones from all of those that are spotted, speckled, and, and uh, ring and, and so to speak. And he says, what I want is I want all of the offspring of the spotted, speckled, uh, gray, you know, whatever, mixed up sheep and cattle to be mine. And that way there's absolutely no uh, confusion about what belongs to who. You can keep the, the, the dominant genes, which would be the solid ones. I'll take everything that's recessive. That can be mine. Yeah. And then there's no arguing over who, what belongs to who and, uh, uh, and the whole thing. It'll be very clear cut. And so he says, so shall my righteous an- righteousness answer for me in the time to come. When it shall come for my hire before thy face. In other words, my righteousness means my integrity or honesty. There'll be no way that you can accuse me of taking something that is not mine. If you agree that all the spotted sheep are mine, then all the spotted sheep are mine. You can't say, well, you stole this, that one's mine, you, you know, we, whatever. He's like, my righteousness will answer for me. It's, It's clear cut everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep shall be counted stolen with me. So if there's one single sheep with me that doesn't have a spot, then you can say you stole that sheep and, and who can argue? That's yours. It's already been agreed upon. And so Laban said, behold, I would that it might be according to your word. He's like, These are the terms, you got it. Easy. I get the dominant, you get the recessive. Great. I love it. Now, Laban, being the man that he was, watch what he does. Here's Laban, verse 35. And so he removed that day the he goats that were ring and spotted and all the she goats that were speckled and spotted. So all the male and female cattle that are spotted and everyone that had some white in it And all the brown among the sheep, watch this, and he gave them into the hand of his sons and set three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. And so he says, deal, you got it. Boys, says to his sons, go get all the spotted speckled and ring straped, and go three days away from Jacob and give him all the solid colors. What are the chances of solid colored sheep giving birth to spotted, speckled, and grace? So basically, he's like, I'm going to win on this thing one way or the other. <laughs> because you, Jacob, go ahead. Take all the purebreds. Because they're not going to give birth to, to whatever. Or, or the chances of it will be much less. And so he set three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob fed the rest of the flock. Now, why do you need three? Do you know have three days' journey? That's a lot. I mean, I from here to the city. you know, it's far. You know what I mean? You know, you, one is enough. But he wants three. And the reason he wants three is because dishonest people project their dishonesty on everyone else. And he thinks, well, what are the chances? You know, I don't want Jacob sneaking in here at night and stealing some of these sheep and you know, cooking, cooking the chances that his sheep will be better. So it just makes this huge gap distance between the two. And so here's what Jacob does now um, in his superstition. It says that Jacob took him rods or sticks, branches, of green poplar, and of the hazel and chestnut tree, and he pilled white streaks in them. So he takes this, these branches, and he kind of takes a vegetable peeler, and he goes, and he just kind of puts stripes in the bark so that when you look at the thing, you see uh, stripes all the way around the circumference of these sticks. And so he made the white appear in the rods, and he set the branches, the rods, which he had pilled before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs, when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And so the picture is, if you see the feeding troughs in your mind, the the background or the scenery that the sheep would see is that they'd see a, a wallpaper of these branches all lined up that are striped you know, the, the bark peeled on the whole thing, and then as they're there, the males would come up behind, they'd mate with the females, and the females would see this uh, pattern of stripes and all while they were uh, being uh, mated or, or bred, so to speak. Now, there's absolutely nothing scientific <laughs> at all about what, this is completely superstitious, and Jacob's going to realize that, because when he argues with Laban in the next chapter, he's going to say, God made this happen, he doesn't give credit. He doesn't say, well, I, you know, you know, this is just Jacob trying to make the, I, I got to do what I can. That's kind of the mentality. I got to do what I can and put put forth the effort, um, that I can into making this happen. But it works. Watch this. Verse 39. It says that the flocks conceived before the rods and brought forth cattle that were ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. And so solid sheep, giving birth to ring-straked, speckled and spotted sheep. And so Jacob did separate the lambs. Now he does something that is scientific. And set the faces of the flocks towards the ring-straked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves. So he separates the two, the two. And he put them not into Laban's cattle. And it came to pass that whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble or weak, he put them not in. So the feebler or weaker were Laban's, And the stronger were Jacob's. So he uses some natural selection here to his advantage, takes the strong sheep and mates them and leaves the weak ones to to be by themselves. And so what you would see if you were part of Jacob's company is that you would see this very healthy, strong flock of spotted, speckled, and ring-straped sheep in abundance. And on the other side, you would see this weak, feeble, scrawny, small flock of white Solid-colored, dominant-gened sheep in the whole thing, and thus, verse forty-three, it says that the man increased exceedingly, and had much cattle, and maidservants, and men servants and camels and asses. And so Laban's business, Laban and sons, uh, you know, sheep herding, has now uh, split. They have gone um, north and south or east and west. And there's two different warehouses. There's three days journey. Um, You know, there's the northeast division and there is the southern division of this company now. And Jacob is in charge of the southern division of this entire company. And the southern division is prospering to the point where the employees have increased. There are servants and maidservants the bottom line, the stock is up, everything, they're go- they've gone public, they're trading, you know, this whole thing, you know, we don't know what's going on with Laban up in the north and his son sons, but we get the idea that his sons are kind of lazy, there's not a whole lot going on in the north, and Jacob is just prospering in this whole thing, hand over fist. Now, it's it's worth um, mentioning in in this whole thing that there is a great contrast, this is something you can think through uh, a little bit more on your own um, between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you just think about the three of them, all three, all three were shepherds, right? Uh, What you have is in Abraham is you have a man who loved God supremely. That's the, the, the token of his life. And the result of that, that love for God and the relationship with God is that there was an increase in his material wealth and possessions. And, and that was, of course, sheep. It says that he was very rich in sheep and in cattle and in gold and silver. And he had the men servants and the maids servants. But listen, and don't miss this, is that the reason was his love for God. That was it. He loved God, and God prospered him. And so Abraham didn't worry about anything else. He worried about his relationship with God, and God took care of him. Now, second generation come to Isaac. Isaac, not the same man that Abraham was, not a lover of God, not not that he didn't have a relationship with him, but it it wasn't what drove him. He saw the flocks, the herds that Abraham had growing up, and he saw, you know what, Abraham spends a lot of his time digging wells because he's got to water his sheep. If you have sheep, you got to take care of them, right? And, And so Isaac's emphasis in his life was wells. That's what he did. You read the whole narrative of his life in the Bible is Isaac dug a well. Isaac dug a well. Abraham built altars. Isaac dug wells. He was into, listen, the process. Not the person of God, but the process of raising sheep. That was Isaac, second generation, wells. But do you notice it was with strife? Abraham in peace. Isaac was strife. They were fighting over this well, the, the servants of uh, Gerar, Abimelech. No, this is ours. And there was constant struggle in his life because it wasn't God. It was wells. It was water. It was process. He prospered. It worked. There was success, but there was success with strife. Now, third generation, we come to Jacob. And what do we see? Doesn't care about the altar, not not there, you know, you don't see him everywhere he's going depending upon God like Abraham his father. Not even the well. He wasn't a well digger going here and digging wells and, and working it out that way. The process, the process is the process, not worried about the process. You know what you get with Jacob? Programs. We're just going to make, we're going to make this thing happen. We're going to market, we're going to carve bark in the whole thing we're going to create a logo and a background and our web page is going to be like nothing anybody's ever seen before and we're going to cook this thing we're going to attract so much publicity and attention and and man we are going to make it happen and he made it happen and you know what you have with Jacob you have prosperity and wealth just like Abraham just like Isaac but with great wrestlings no contentment look at His personal life, it's shambles. Look at his family life. It's a mess. Everything outward, everything earthly, everything on the horizontal plane is nothing but chaos with Jacob. (coughs) And and I wonder how God might just search our own hearts, just thinking about those three men and our walk with with him on this world. Who do we represent or or most closely reflect? Are we like Abraham? Abraham? Where the emphasis of my life is that, God, I want you, and I want your will, I want your way, I want you in my life, I want to please you, I want to go where you want me to go, I want my relationship with heaven to be what it's supposed to be, and let everything else fall where it may. Or, maybe we're like Isaac, process, well, how do I get God to do what he's going to do to multiply within my life? Well, I've got to go after the well, I've got to go after the water, I've got to chase after uh, this or that. And we're seeking the blessing of God, but we're not seeking the God of the blessing. That's Isaac, or are we like Jacob, self-made, self-willed Christians? We're blood bought. We're going to heaven, but we're the captain of our own destiny. The fathership of God has been settled, but the I don't even remember what I said now. But the lordship of Christ has not. God is our Father. Jesus is our Savior, but he very much is not Lord of our lives. It's our way. It's the way we want to do things. Blessing might still be there. God will still prosper. But why? And for what? And what does everything else in our life look like? Our family life, our professional life, our mental and emotional well-being and stability. Where are those things at, really, as it comes to our life? in the whole thing. Maybe we are like Jacob. And Jacob is a wrestler. He's wrestling with God, even though the wrestling match hasn't happened yet. He's very much a man who's wrestling with God over control of his life. His wives are wrestling amongst themselves. Jacob is wrestling with his wives over who belongs to what and who gets to sleep with who and who's dwelling where. And there's constant strife. He's being pulled in pieces by by what's going on in his family. He's wrestling with himself over his career and his discontentment with where he's at and where he should be and where he's living and where he's not living and all of that is not settled in his life. Jacob is wrestling with his associates. We're going to see between him and Laban, there is wrestling. They're, 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 they're jockeying for wages and position. There's not peace between them. In the very first verse of the next chapter, we're going to see that there's wrestling between, between Jacob and the sons of Laban. We're going to see in the next chapter that there's wrestling between uh, um, Jacob's wives and their father. Everything that summarizes this man's life is wrestling. He he is a wrestler. Now listen, and then we're going to be done. Tune in. Listen, the reason why Jacob is out of harmony with everything in his life is because he is out of harmony with heaven on earth as it is in heaven. There is a direct relationship between earth and heaven and earth and earth. And if things are out of harmony between earth and heaven, they will be out of harmony between earth and earth. And that's true for every one of our lives, and it's true about every area of our life. That the way that you and I relate to heaven, that same relationship is going to be reflected in every aspect of our lives on earth. If we are self-willed towards God, then that self-will is going to look like something in every other area of our life. If we're out of harmony with God's purposes for us, just in our relationship with him, then that's going to look like something on earth. There must be harmony. Now, how does it happen that we get into harmony with heaven? I look at it a lot like a piano string. Um, not the bass strings, but the higher ones. If you ever look inside of a piano, you'll see that for every hammer, for every key that you touch on the piano, there are three strings that are struck by that hammer. And in order for that piano to sound right and to be in tune, all three of those strings have to be in complete and exact tune with each other. There must be an equivalent equivalence in the hurts or the vibrations that those three strings are, are, are hitting. And if one, even one of those three strings is out even a little bit, it's discordant. You, it sounds like an old piano in an old church. You hit it and it's like, you know, you hit it and yeah, that's an F sharp, but there's something wrong with it. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not right. It's out of tune with itself. There's something wrong there. And as it relates to you and I being in harmony with heaven, there are three strings there is our relationship with God the Father. And our relationship with God the Father is in harmony when we are born again. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, we have peace with God, that's harmony, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you and I come into a relationship with him through the blood covenant of his Son, meaning that we ask for the forgiveness of our sins, And we come to him by faith, and he imparts to us the gift of salvation. At that moment, we are brought into a harmonious relationship with God the Father. And if a person is not saved, if a person is not born again, then they are automatically out of tune on every front. There is nothing that's right between them and heaven at all. But when a person is born again, because of the gift of his son and his righteousness, we are automatically placed in a right relationship, father and son. And that cannot be shaken because it's not us that did it. It's Jesus that did it. And so we're in harmony with God the Father at the moment of our salvation. And Jacob is there. He has that. He's saved And that is why, listen, that is why there can be blessing in his life, even though there are other areas of his life that are completely out of harmony, because God's not going to take away his status as a son and not going to stop taking care of him because of those other things. That's set right. And that's why you and I can have blessing in our lives. And at the same time, in other areas of our life, we're in just complete chaotic craziness. Because there is harmony on that one string. But there's another string. The second string is our relationship with God the Son. His Son, Jesus Christ. And the, 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 and the harmony of that relationship, listen, is that he is to be the Lord of our lives. If a man believe in his heart that Jesus, or that God raised him that and confess with his mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Lord. He must be the Lord of my life. And what that means is that every area of my life is in surrender and submission to his lordship, that he is the captain and the Lord of everything that pertains to my life. That's who he's to be. That's who God the Father ordained to be the Lord of our lives. That's Jesus. And if he is Savior but not Lord, then there is going to be discordance in our lives. Things are going to turn sideways. They're not going to be right. When we look at, you know, as pastors or even as brothers, just us in the church, and we look at the, the chaos that takes place in people's lives in their marriages or in their families or with, uh, with their kids or in their parenting or in their business, the issue and the reason why those things are chaotic the way they are is not because, you know, of, of bad parenting or, you know, it's always, listen, always a lordship issue, always is that if I'm not obedient to his ways and to his commands and what he calls me to do, then there will not be harmony in my relation, my, my relation to whatever those things are on earth. If I'm not obedient to him in the way that I manage my money, then there's going to be chaos in the way that my money is on earth. If there is not obedience for me as a husband in the way that I deal with and treat my wife, then there is not going to be harmony in my marriage. If there is not obedience to Christ in the way that I raise my kids, in the dynamics of my family life, then there is not going to be harmony in my family. It's always a lordship issue in our lives. And he is to be the Lord of all. And in order for us to be in harmony with heaven in that regard... We must make him Lord of all. There are times that we come across something in our experience that we have a very difficult time surrendering to God, don't we? I know I do. I do. I I know I do. And so what do we do with that? Because I know that's the stumbling block in this whole thing. How do I make him Lord of my life in an area that I can't let go? Like Rachel, right? I can't let go of this. I can't let go of this. Give me children or I die. What do we do? Here's what you do. Is that you bring that issue to him and you surrender the entire suitcase of it. You say, God, I cannot surrender this. It's too big in my life. It's too big for me. Lord, I can't do it. Money has had a hold on me. It's had a hold on my father. It had a hold on his father. I can't surrender the money thing to you, God. But I'm willing that you would take it. Lord, change my mind concerning this. That's surrender. Lord, my sex drive as a man has controlled me from as long as I can remember, and I cannot surrender this to you. Even if I wanted to, I don't know how I can't. You bring the whole thing to God, and you say, God, I can't. It's too big for me. But you can, Lord, and I'm willing that you would make me who I'm supposed to be in this area of my life. See, that's the hard thing for most people, is that they're not willing even to be made willing. But when we are and we bring these things to him, he is able to do it. And he can and he does and he will. He must be the Lord of every part of our life. Because if there is not harmony between earth and heaven, there will not be harmony between earth and earth. There's a third string, finally. And that is right relationship between us and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, that there are graces that the Holy Spirit provides for our lives. Namely, love, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, strength, counsel, and the fear of the Lord. And those things come from God the Holy Spirit and they are imparted into our life when we're in a right relationship with him in galatians chapter 5 verse 22 there's a whole list of other things that god the holy spirit produces in our lives love joy peace patience kindness meekness temperance goodness self-control we know we know them as the fruit of the holy spirit within our life and god's desire is that there be a flow of his spirit in and then out of our lives and the result of that is that all of those graces are going to be present all those things listed in Isaiah eleven two, 2 Galatians 5-22. But if there isn't harmony in our lives between our relationship with God, then those things are going to be quenched and grieved in our relationship with men. And so there must be harmony between earth and heaven in order for there to be harmony on the things concerning earth and earth. Jacob couldn't settle the lordship issue. And thus everything else at this point in his life is pure chaos. And if we expect in our lives that we're going to be any different, then we're fools. If these things aren't set right, the ladder that stretches from earth to heaven, if that's not right and the harmony of those things, then we're going to feel the effects of it on earth. And let me tell you something as we close. To get that relationship right, settled, our relationship with God the Father our relationship with God the Son, and our relationship with God the Holy Spirit, it is absolutely worth it in every respect, no matter what it costs. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. That's God's will for our lives. If a man's ways please the Lord, the Bible says, then he makes even his enemies to dwell at peace with him. Harmony on the vertical equals peace on the horizontal. May God give us wisdom as we look at a man who wasted his entire earthly life, or at least most of it, wrestling when he could have been settled. May God give us settled. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen.